Welcome to Mutuality Matters, Gender Theology for the Gospel Empowerment of Men and Women. I am Erin Moniz, here with my wonderful co-host, Blake Dean, and today we are excited to discuss a topic that we find fun and interesting. Church history, feminist history, and the unsung female theologians. So, Blake Dean, first and foremost, let's get this out of the way. What are you watching, reading, or listening to? That's a fabulous question. I'm going to answer it on two fronts. Number one, I'm reading a book that everyone should check out. I have not finished it yet, but it will definitely be worth your time. It's Tish Harrison Warren's latest book, Prayer in the Night, which takes um, Mm. a prayer from Compline, which is the um, prayer office right before going to sleep, and uses it to be part personal story, part theology, part discipleship guide. It's maybe not discipleship yeah. guide, but um, nourishment to maybe those of us that are weary. And um, I have been really uh, blessed and encouraged and challenged by the book. And I recommend it highly, highly, highly to everyone. Beautiful prose, beautiful ideas, beautiful and prayerful posture of the author. So have really enjoyed that. And on a very different note, I watched... A movie that I now love, but is a straight-up acid trip, which is <laughs> S- Barb and Star Go to Vista Del Mar. Oh, yes, Barb and Star. I don't know Star. if I've talked about this movie on this podcast yet. I just saw it, but I've been looking forward to it for so long. And I finally watched it, and I will say this. It is as funny as it is cringy. And the jokes, per minute ratio our next level. You would really like it, maybe. But I loved it. I do love weird It's weird. It's real weird, but I loved every second. Yeah, I I gathered that from the trailer, but I'm also intrigued. I'm very intrigued. It's bonkers. But I loved it. I I loved it so much. All right. right. Well, there you go. There you go. for me, um, I just started Jamar Tisby's The Color Ooh, of Compliments. Oh, yeah, nice. Which I haven't gotten all the way through yet, but I already love and um, would recommend already to anyone. Um, I'm actually trying to get through it quickly because I want to read his most recent book that came out, um, How to Fight Racism. Anyways, I you know my stack just keeps getting bigger and bigger, and I'm just like grabbing them off the shelf as fast as possible and, and trying to, to take them in. But yes. That would be my recommendation. And I keep picking, like, Prayer in the Night's not this way, but I'm, I just started Middlemarch, and I'm like, oh, I'm really excited to read this classic novel by George Eliot. But it's, like, so long. I'm like, Blake, why do you do this to yourself? <laughs> you get in like, these what? big, huge, thick books. Um, and then, yeah. So, speaking, before we get into the meat of our podcast, yes. I would love to have just a brief moment to talk about the saint that was canonized today by Pope Francis. Today being the day we're recording it, not the day that it comes out. However, I think it fits perfectly with our conversation about church history and unsung female um, theologians or people of the faith. And so I didn't know her story um, until today, but her name is Margaret of Castello, now Saint Margaret of Castello. And the Pope, actually Pope Francis, made her a saint by, I do not know how to say this word, so no one come for me. Don't email me. 
Um, <laughs> Equipollent canonization. So basically, he forgoed the usual, like, judicial process of canonization. So no formal attribution of miracles or scientific examin- examinations. He just said, we're going to, like, give this saint our attention. And her life was really gnarly, but also very extraordinary. So she was born, she's an Italian woman in the 13th um, and 14th centuries. And she was born blind and with a curvature in her spine, so severe it was impossible to walk. Apparently the condition is now called dwarfism. Um, And her parents were minor nobles and were really, really, really concerned about social status. And so they treated her terribly and were so ashamed of her that they told people she died in childbirth. And so when she was six, her parents really worried that people would like find out that she, you know, didn't die in childbirth. So they imprisoned her in a room off of their chapel and sealed the room's doors. And the only person that was allowed to come to her was a priest to like catechize her and give her the Eucharist. Um, At one point, like the family moved, um, but then they like locked her in another cell. But when she was 15, they took her to a church where people were experiencing miracles and basically were hoping that she would be healed. And when she wasn't healed, they abandoned her at this church. And so then the local people took care of her. Uh, How, how not to feel about miracles. Oh my Lord. And so (laughs) then like the local people took care of her and people gave her shelter and eventually she moved into a convent and became a Dominican of the third order and was present and prayerful among the people and the city grew to love her. And then when she died at the age of 33, they demanded that she be buried inside the church, which now sounds weird to like, especially our Protestant ears, but like that was only typically reserved for like nobles and priests. And the people demanded that she be like, she was so well beloved um, as a, as a human, but also as a holy person that they demanded that she be, be buried in the church. Um, and the story goes that the entire town attended her funeral and a young girl was said to be cured during the mass for her funeral. So now she is, um, she was declared blessed by the church in the six, like 1609 and has a feast day, but now she's like in the Catholic church's yearly feast day and in this podcast we serve the lord and we love the saints like we're we're i like i love the saints i know that's for our protestant listeners they might bristle but these are just examples for us um and testaments to god's grace um and so saint margaret of castello um also like informally the patron saint of the disabled so i love it i love everything big fan i wanted to have a little bit of story time um, to update, especially all of our Protestant friends who maybe don't keep up with that. That's a big deal. And sainthood is a, is a way that even in, um, even in times where maybe women didn't have as, um, robust of a place in church, women have been recognized as spiritual exemplars, which is not to be overlooked that the grace Mm -hmm. of God works in and through women in times and moments where women weren't, were overlooked. Absolutely, hundred percent. Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. Yes, we are recording w- this on April twenty seventh, and that is that is the day, and we are very excited and yeah, celebrate. That is story time with Blake Dean. 
start reflecting. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, let's uh, let's talk about more um, of these overlooked, amazing um, heroines of the faith. So, um, today we're going to be talking about Catherine Bushnell, which for our listeners that may may be familiar, or you just may be going... Until you talked to me about her like four weeks ago, I had no idea about this woman. Yeah. Oh, guys, strap in because you are going to be amazed at just why you haven't heard about this woman, that you're going to just be in disbelief um, about this. So, um, so tell us a little bit about why Bushnell is like, why should we even be talking about her? Yeah, well, I'm going to borrow um, some words from two presidents, one founding president, one current president of an organization that we both love, uh, Christians for Biblical Equality. Catherine, I believe you say Kroger, like the grocery store, um, said, mm-hmm. quote, although women had made forays into the field of biblical interpretation, it was to be Catherine Bushnell who would bring out the heavy artillery. And our friend um, and former podcast guest, Mimi Haddad, Dr. Mimi Haddad, who's the current president of CBE, said, quote, Bushnell is to egalitarians what Luther was to the Reformation. And those are bold words. Dim's big words. Those are big words. Yeah, that's that's pretty huge. But after flipping through her major work, which we'll talk about, which is called um, God's Word to Women, they ain't wrong. (laughs) They ain't wrong. (laughs) No. No. So this woman lived between um, 1855 and 1946. So she spanned, she started in kind of the Victorian era um, on the heels of the, of the 19th century and then um, ended up passing away, um, you know, right, right after World War II. So like her life, like the time that occupied her life, so many important things happened in history, um, particularly, you know, things like the Enlightenment and the rise of uh, fundamentalism and two world wars and all of these things. She was a doctor. She was a writer. She was a social activist. She was a biblical scholar. She was a missionary. She, yeah, she was a missionary and she was, um, she was famously involved in, um, in the feminist movement, um, particularly as a feminist theologian Mm -hmm. in the early days. Um, so, so brief introduction, to first wave feminism, if this is a title that is new to you, it is worth understanding that feminism was always not just one thing. Um, it has come in waves. And first wave feminism uh, actually tied very closely to other movements. So women's rights didn't start in a vacuum. A lot of them were tied to different things that um, caused a lot of oppression women. So the temperance movement was one of these things. So if you ever wondered why all those women in big dresses were so up in arms about alcohol, it was not because they were teetotalers as much as it was because this was one of the aspects that uh, was linked so directly to domestic violence and rape and like all of these abuses. Women, women largely didn't have rights, especially in the United States. Um, If women were divorced, they couldn't get custody of their children. They couldn't own businesses. They couldn't um, on property. There was just a lot of things going on. Um, and the plight of women was taken up in these movements. And so out of the temperance movement and the abolitionist movement, um, came, uh, a lot of the feminist ideals of saying, Hey, women need the right to vote. Women need the right to assemble. Women re- need all of these rights. And so the suffrage is usually what we refer to in this time, but it bled into the early 20th century, 
um, with the rise of uh, medical advances, particularly birth control. And so, so these are some of the, the ideas that uh, sort of captured this movement. But a lot of the women and men who were a part of first wave feminism were very much driven by their faith. Most people yeah. uh, remember Susan B. Anthony, the big uh, voting lobbyist, and she was a Quaker, and that was a huge part of who she was. So there's just um, Sojourner Truth and, and people like this who were really used their faith as a prompt and a, a significant factor in their push for women's rights. And it's worth saying that, I mean, kind of to double down on that, not only was it a prompt or a factor but for a lot of the really influential voices, it was the foundational worldview that led them to believe that women were not ontologically inferior to men. Because scripture, um, although we have lots of, you know, although there were many poor interpretations, um, that that it, that wasn't self-evident. And I think um, that's something that's really remarkable about Catherine Bushnell, which we'll get into in a second is the way that she read scripture um, and not in a manipulative way, but just in a truthful, but intellectually honest way, um, kind of revealing the discrepancies. But I, th I think that's true of a lot of first wave feminists for all of their failures, particularly lack of inclusion of women of color. Right. Right. Um, or indigenous women or um, other marginalized yeah. <laughs> groups. Um, yeah. The, the thing that we can and have to credit to them is the centrality of their faith, which um, to I think a lot of people who grew up um, in particularly Christian spaces, I think that comes as a surprise because we're there's this idea that feminism in all of its forms is so foreign to is separate and siloed from the Christian faith when actually it was um, it was intertwined for a lot of these activists and only over time has it grown to be kind of these siloed spaces. Yeah. And, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Cause I think it, yeah, I think it is a surprise to anyone who's not familiar with that. Um, the line we've been fed in churches for the last uh, several decades is that feminism is wholly secular and is majorly secular and therefore an enemy of the church. Um, but we don't really look at our history and we don't really look at the mothers of the church that came and showed us a different way. So Catherine Bushnell kind of stands as sort of an icon uh, for me for this era. And we're just going to touch on a couple things here. What I really recommend you do is go out and get Kristen Dumez's um, book, A New Gospel for Women, which is basically a primer on Catherine Bushnell and her work. Um, and a lot of what we'll be talking about today comes come straight out of a reading from from that book. You may recognize the name because she also came out with a book called Jesus and John Wayne. But this one is about Catherine Bushnell. It's really good. Yeah. And I would also recommend um, God's Word to Women, which is Catherine Bushnell's um, actual book, actual work, which is free online. Like you can get it. I have a PDF of it that I got online from like her foundation, um, yeah. which is really, really, really readable and really um <laughs> long but also very compelling um and yeah. i and i would i'd recommend that and it's pretty remarkable that we have it because it was out of print for a long time like it it didn't it make it didn't make the splash that um that it may, may we may even think that it would talking about it but it was out of print for it was out of print from 1923 until 1975 
Um, So it's pretty remarkable that we actually, that we have the text in the first place. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I was, I was really struck reading, especially in the last chapter of Dumez's book, um, where she talks a little bit about sort of the winding road um, where the book just dropped off into oblivion and why it got resurrected. And it's sort of just through these like little pieces of happenstance and people who picked it up and started reprinting it. Some call it Providence. Yeah. Some call it Providence. Crazy how that works. Um, But yeah, it's, it, it's, it's really interesting. And so uh, just, just a little primer, a little uh, peek into Catherine Bushnell. So when she really started getting into what would, what would make her, her vocation um, as a social activist, she noticed as a doctor that there was a lot of discrepancy in the way sexual ethics were understood in the Victorian era British empire, um, particularly stressing the need for women to um, be the keepers of all things pure and virgin, while as men needed um, to express themselves sexually in and through. So prostitutes were basically a necessary institution, um, particularly for soldiers in the British Empire in different countries. And so um, British Parliament passed the Contagious Diseases Act, which is highly controversial historical act that essentially put the burden on women to not to not contract or spread sexually contagious diseases. And so these prostitutes, which were largely indigenous women in the areas mm. local to the occupation of the British Empire, um, were basically kept in camps and given really terrible medical treatment. And if they had sexual diseases, they were basically kept like prisoners um, and not treated very well. I would just like to say, not that this is a one-to-one ratio, but if this feels like a far-off fantasy, there are reports um, that some similar um, or adjacent medical procedures are happening to immigrant women in the state of Georgia last year. So just want to say, same world. Yep. Yep. History repeats itself when we don't learn from it. Um, And so she and a lot of her other sort of sisters in arms is part of... um, women's movements and the various denominations they were a part of began petitioning Congress. And they actually, she and a fellow of hers went down to uh, some of these, some of these areas where these women were being kept and did like full blown medical studies Mm. of the women and published their work um, in protest of these practices and of the contagious disease act. And they were often ridiculed and put down. They had a couple of kind of key like nemesis uh, men in parliament who didn't like them. And they went toe to toe with these guys, challenged them and got a lot of really bad laws overturned as a result. So she was highly active in this. She saw, she saw the, the, the disparity in medical treatment and, and the way women were understood as sexual objects of men. Um, She began seeing more and more of these things tied back to a central, um, patriarchal uh, idea that was then was being supported hand and foot by the church. Mm. And this is when she sort of moves into the second phase of her activism, which is she begins to study biblical languages and she begins to um, learn Greek and Hebrew and starts taking original, you know, like languages in scripture and doing translations and looking at some of the classic passages that the church was using to support these demeaning ideas of women. And Girlfriend wrote a book, God's Good News for Women, where she is like the first one to take these classic passages and start unpacking them from an original language's perspective and just 
brilliant, just brilliant stuff. Now, there's there's a little bit of a lack of scholarship there because girlfriend was not allowed to go to seminary, so she was doing some of this on her own. But for its time, it's formidable though. Amazing. I think I yeah. was I think I was expecting to open a pamphlet. I think I was expecting mm. and, and welcome patriarchies in us all. I think I, <laughs> I think I was expecting something um, a moral sounding call. I yeah. um, I think that's what I was expecting, and then I opened it, and it's like three hundred page monograph, and it's yeah. it's formidable. It's not shabby. It mm. reads um, it reads also very modernly um, as well. Obviously, it's dealing with scholars of the time, so there are names that I'm going. I don't know who that is, um, or <laughs> I'm not familiar with that argument. Um, but it's it's really formidable, and one of her greatest, or one of her, and I while I don't know that this idea is original to her, but one of the things she articulates really clearly in the book and spends laborious amounts of time to argue and rightfully so um, is the role of Christ in redeeming the status of women. I'd love to read a quote. Expositors of the Bible will never be able to understand nor set forth a clear, consistent, correct interpretation of the word of God as regards women until they abandon once for all the attempt to found the social, ecclesiastical, and spiritual as far as this life is concerned, status of Christian women on the fall and found it as they do man's social, ecclesiastical, and spiritual status in the atonement of Jesus Christ. Said another way, women... Paraphrase. Yeah, to paraphrase, women's role in the body of Christ in the kingdom of heaven ought not and cannot be shackled by the quote-unquote responsibility of Eve in the deception of the fall. But rather, women have been redeemed and made new, given a new status in Christ, just as men have. This is all things that we would affirm now. Even, I think, our... Even even most of our complementarian brothers and sisters would affirm this. The arguments have kind of... Like, kind of siphoned off into different spaces. Mm -hmm. But I think this is an important reminder that for a long time this was the narrative and it's inspired um by some bad readings of first timothy um indeed for for the woman was deceived not the man um which is in clear contradiction to um some of some of the his statements in romans as well so we need to read that with a careful eye and i think she does a really good job of kind of parsing that out but also the thing that i found so um, wonderful and inspiring and um, formidable about her work is her engagement with Pauline texts. Um, mm-hmm. I One of my favorite uh, sections is called Needless Apologies for Paul's Logic, um, where she basically <laughs> takes um, takes some interpreters that she um, that she thinks are just making bad arguments about Paul's relationship yeah. to rabbinic literature yeah. or whatever and suggesting excuse me and suggesting that um, either the word of God is the word of God or it's not. And so what do we then do with it? And then using that to reflect the inherent dignity and calling of um, women. And I, I found it to be really formidable. Of course, it's of its time in the sense that it's dealing with the academic arguments at that time. So that those are not the academic arguments that we're having right now. Right. However, it's it is worth... A reading. It is worth a, a skimming or a really close reading to learn from her wisdom and to be inspired by the fact that it started 
with seeing the world as it ought not to be. But her returning to the authority of scripture and never undermining the authority of scripture, but rather asking questions about our incoherent words about God and about the world we live in. And she is placing Christ smack dab in the middle, which is a Pauline instinct if I've ever heard one in 1 Corinthians, for I've chosen to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. Um, So I was really kind of gobsmacked a little bit by her book. I expected it to be good, but it is really, really, really formidable and great. It is. It's she's a heavyweight and 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 why she just went into obscurity is I think the the big most interesting part of this whole tale because now we have scholars, we have like Cynthia Westfall and people who are who are doing some similar scholarship in this way and and writing these things and, and putting out good content. Um but this happened. This happened back in the late eighteen hundreds. And so like what happened? What happened to Catherine Bushnell? And and what happened I think is a very uh, important tale for us today because it's the, the same, it's the same song on repeat. Um, and so at the turn into the 20th century, there were major forces happening in the Western world and reactions to the enlightenment started creating cultural separations between, uh, the rise of secularism and the rise of fundamentalism. Mm. And so religion got more and more centrally fundamental. Um, there's actually a great PBS special called God in America that has just a great section that talks about this. And if you, if you need kind of a a look into some of the religious um, patterns that were happening during this time. So fundamentalism began to say, we need to get back to the fundamentals. We need to get back to, you know, what's, what's foundational about our faith. And then um, with, with the rise of, you know, Darwinism and and new interpretations of scripture and things coming out of the enlightenment, you had other people who were saying, no, our faith, needs more, you know, more trust in science, you know, we're not going to, these miracles, probably not, these aren't good things. And so um, there began to be this very intense divide and feminism started riding the coattails more of, um, and started joining in with the narratives that were the more secular narratives versus the fundamentalist narratives. And that is for obvious reasons. I mean, where do you actually get a seat at the table? So, so I don't, I don't want to disparage that choice um, but it did have particular repercussions on history that we're seeing now. In- including like a tie to, correct me if I'm wrong, a tie to eugenics, a tie to... Yes. So for those of you that need to look up the word eugenics, this is basically an idea that was very popular in the late 1800s, early 1900s, um, where it's basically taking... It's basically husbandry and breeding. It's taking, it's trying to create the super race. Um, if you look at a lot of Nietzsche's writing and like like people that were coming out, it's just like pre-World War One era. Um, we were talking a lot about creating the super race, about um, creating genetically altering people and animals and everything else to the point where, um, to where we were like the best, the brightest, the fastest, the strongest. And of course we were doing horrific experiments on uh, people of color and um, eugenics is one of the evils that was sort of taken over by Adolf Hitler. And so like eugenics is, is very largely um, uh, put down. Now you don't hear a lot of people talking about it favorably, but at the time it was, it was a big idea. And Catherine Bushnell was like, hold the phone 
this is not cool. And so a lot of things related to, um, she was pushing back against some of the secular progressive narratives um, because she saw ways that science were actually perpetuating a patriarchal narrative and were not being good to women. But she also pushed back against the fundamentalist movement because she saw them also perpetuating a patriarchal narrative that wasn't good for women. And ultimately... And it wasn't Christocentric. And it wasn't Christocentric. And she kept calling them out on this. And so um, she was this conservative Christian who was Bible-believing, faithful to Scripture, faithful to the Word, faithful to her, um, her personal faith in Christ as Lord and Savior. And so that started separating her from the secularists. And then she started being basically silenced by her feminist sisters because she took a strong stance on birth control. And what's interesting here is the rise of birth control was happening right here at this uh, the last part of her life in the 1940s. And she... Um, she took a stance where she believed that birth control was still not going to be as good for women as people claimed it would be because it still put the onus of sexual purity and practice and everything back onto the female. And as much as I, who am a married woman, who partake of these advances in medication, I am very happy that we have these advances in medication. But I hear Bushnell and I hear her and I'm like, you know, girlfriend, you ain't wrong. You you do see things. There are some backwards things to some of these medical advances for women. And while I thank God for it, I, I got to say, I, I hear her. And I mean, just to kind of double down, because I think to mo- to our modern ears, that can sound like a really right. foolish like a, like an ignorance yeah. position, especially because it was so tied mm-hmm. to sexual liberation. Um, but I would I would just raise the point very humbly um that that i i find it notable that the most consistent and effective birth control method that we do have um is only able to be used by women and we do not have an equal and comparable birth control method yeah. for yeah. men um therefore like you like she said the onus of res- quote unquote responsibility um is on females yeah and so while she saw some merits in birth control, especially for women who were having sex forced upon them, which was an unfortunate plight even among married women at the time. She saw that the that the patriarchy, you know, the the push of sexual power and the disproportion of sexual power, um, that that could be helpful to women, but she didn't believe it to be empowering. She didn't see sexual liberation as equal to um, dis- redistributing balances of power and um and so it so she was critical. She was critical of this of this rise, but also she was progressive on women in leadership and she pushed for women to be equal in all arenas of the church. And so on one end, she's way too conservative for the secular feminists, and she's way too progressive for the fundamentalists. And so when she died, she basically died in obscurity. No friends, no advocates, no people championing her, and her book just fell off the radar for years she had did she not have her companion because she always had well she like a really yeah really but close... she passed away earlier than bushnell did if i'm remembering the book correctly okay. in the timeline so she uh yeah and the thing is um she got quite a bit more cantankerous in her old age as as many do and uh and so she didn't pull any punches she was writing to all these different people and being like what is wrong with you you know and so she didn't make many friends in her old age but like 
girlfriend had lived a long life and had seen yeah she had been on the front lines of of the power dynamics in in sex for men and women and as a result mm. she felt like she had a platform and i i really think she did mm. but it was a, it was just historically at a time when we were splitting into these extremes and bushnell just didn't fit she just didn't fit mm. and a lot of us are sort of the the children of that movement, right? Yeah. Uh, we, we've, we've talked before about how um, we oftentimes find ourselves having to meticulously navigate conversations with our non-Christian friends and our Christian friends because being, um, being in a place where we believe in the gospel empowerment of men and women uh, through, through good gender theology and that, that equality and equity that's part of that uh, makes us unpopular in certain Christian circles, but also the fact that we are deeply committed to Christ and that our faith is, is central to and our scripture. life. Yes, that scripture should be taken so seriously. That is so much part of our life. Um, makes us unpopular with the other side. So we're just making everybody mad. That's just kind of, but that's that's why you have a podcast, I think. But generous but to generous, all. Very generous. But kind and generous <laughs> to all. kind and I, generous. No, Truly. I think that... I I have loved getting to learn about Catherine Bushnell and I've I love that we get to kind of in this kind of interim time for us get to kind of just share her story but we are certainly not historians and we are certainly not Bushnell right. scholars we Caveat. are two people that like reading mm-hmm. books and have the internet so again you should go get Dumez's yes. book A New Gospel for Women which I will say I I kind of bristled at the title and so like for anyone that's bristling at the title, I'm kind of with you, but it is a, it's a worthwhile read. Publishers make titles, not always authors. Um, and then um, and then also make sure to Google and you can just get a free PDF of um, Bushnell's kind of keystone work, God's word to women. Aaron, I would love to ask you. I you know this about me. I am so interested and passionate about the intersection of church history and gender issues and how to actually know where we come from and not just the horrible things, but also the remarkable women and men that we just truly don't know about, or maybe I don't know about. I wonder, um, because we can't do an episode for every, um, baller woman from church history. I wonder if you have one or two women from church history that you would recommend to our listeners, um, that they should Google and they should learn and they should read some books about. Oh gosh. Yeah. I would, I would start with some of the names um, that show up in, in Catherine Bushnell's biography. Um, Francis Willard, um, Susan B. Anthony. um, Oh gosh. Those are my some of my faves, but there there are some other key women that were really rocking the boat during uh, this time. And um, while their names are escaping me at this moment, if you if you uh, go and look up these women and get invested in sort of the women who are orbiting them during this time, um, you will find some all stars who come out of the Christian first wave feminist movement and Mm -hmm. and to be fair because that movement was infested with white supremacy um 
Sojourner Truth and some of the key abolitionists during that time who were also part of that movement um, need need their need their day in the sun. So so a lot of the writings and the friendships and the conventions overlap because the world was so much, you know, kind of smaller back then. And so um, you these all of these women intersected at these different points. Um, but yeah. Uh, yeah, those would be the ones I'd start with. Um, there are so many great, there are names in, in the book, in the Dumez book about people who came alongside Catherine Bushnell during her time. And I would say you want to check those out. Yeah, I would, um, since you kind of doubled down on American first wave feminism, I'm going to zoom out. I think you should Google St. Hildegard of Bingen. She's amazing. And you should read about her while you listen to her on Spotify, because she not only was an abbess, a writer. She was also a composer, a mystic, and a philosopher. She's great. Some wild stories. Big fan of Hildegard. I also think if you do not know the story of Perpetua and Felicity, both saints, I think you need to go learn that story. I think it's pretty remarkable, and I think you will be better for it. And thirdly, I would say if you don't know anything about Dorothy Day, you should Google Dorothy Day as well. Yes, we should we should include in the show notes, Blake Dean, a list of some of our all stars. Okay, I would love we to do that because there to. are just so and, many good and ones. And like even, I mean, and I think the thing that's so interesting about history too is like Dorothy Day. Like I'm currently listening to her autobiography, and there's moments where I'm going, "Oh, friend, that's like not it about manhood or womanhood." But her life was so yeah. remarkable, in in all of the most quote unquote unremarkable ways. Um, and I think that's something to also know, right? That God works even in the midst of um, or in spite of the limitations that either we place on ourselves or other people yeah. place on us. But so. dear listeners, we are always going to point you towards people you've never heard of who are absolutely remarkable. And you may have grown up in church and never, never come across these amazing people who have contributed so much to how we understand ourselves as men and women and fighting back against the sins that infest the church of, of misogyny and, and of, of just poor concepts of power and guys, and this isn't this isn't a recent movement. Uh, this this goes back. We have people who have been contributing to this over and over and over again throughout history. The spirit of God has yeah. been doing this. Perpetua, the who Blake mentioned, goes all Oof. the way back all the way back to the early days of the church. And so she is one of the mothers of the church um, and then moving forward. So we will leave you our all-star list of folks. It's going to be long. I'm just prepping you now. It's going to be long. We love these folks, but um, yeah, we'll hit as many as we can over the course of however long the good Lord lets us do this podcast. But in the meantime, we want to say thank you for joining us today. And if you enjoyed this podcast, we'd love to hear from you. We are on the Facebook, the Instagram, and the Twitter. You can How dare you. <laughs> you can leave us a rating or a view on whatever podcast platform you use. Um, we appreciate you connecting us to other listeners and telling people about the podcast. We always love to hear from you and hear your feedback. Um, and again, signing off, this is Aaron Monez with my co-host Blake Dean, and we are Mutuality Matters. Thanks for listening.